The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Well, we begin a new study today through the book of Leviticus. And today's sermon is going to be an overview to the study. Just think of it kind of as a topical sermon on the entire book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the third book in the Bible, the Old Testament, so Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. Now, you may be wondering why Leviticus? If you were part of a church growth strategy group, you would probably say, don't preach through Leviticus. It'd probably not be the first thing uh, on your list of how to grow a church. In fact, uh, last year during a, a great growth in our church, uh, the deacons being faithful and keeping an eye on things, saying, man, if the growth continues on this curve here, we're, when we get to a certain point, we're going to have to uh, get an architect and see if we can expand the sanctuary. I was like, well, that sounds expensive. I'll just preach to Leviticus. <laughs> we'll flatten that curve. That's why this uh, sermon series is called 15 Lord's Days to Flatten the Curve. <laughs> but in all honesty, still, why Leviticus? What exactly are we going to learn by studying a bunch of outdated Jewish ceremonial laws? I mean, we don't offer animal and food sacrifices today, and we don't need to come through a Levitical priest. The book of Leviticus is named after the Levites, the Levitical priests. That's the setting of the book. But we don't go through Levitical priests to worship God. We don't need to avoid eating bacon. That's one of the reasons why we praise God for the new covenant. We don't need to quarantine for seven days after giving birth. We don't need to quarantine for an evening after intercourse. So what use do we have for a bunch of expired Old Testament Jewish laws? No, we don't have much use for food that's been expired after six months or so, what use do we have for food laws that have been expired for 2,000 years? And this is probably why Leviticus is the least read and studied book of the Bible. It seems so irrelevant. And, if we're honest, we wouldn't say this out loud. Boring. I mean, how many of you like to sit around and read an instruction manual? And this is one of the main excuses that unbelievers use to reject the Bible. They'll say, well, the Bible says you need to offer up sacrifices, and you Christians don't, so why should I believe the Bible? So, why study Leviticus? Why did God preserve this in His Word for us today? Remember what Paul said in Romans 15. Whatever was written in times past, including Leviticus, is written for our instruction today. So how can we profit from Leviticus when we are not under the Old Covenant, but under the New? 
In answering this question, I want to ask and answer three questions as outlined for today. The first is, how does Leviticus fit into the overall storyline of the Bible? The second is, how does Leviticus show the way back into God's presence? And the third is, how does Leviticus show us how then we should live? So these are the questions to ask in order to answer the question, why study Leviticus? Why is it relevant? So first, how does Leviticus fit into the overall storyline of the Bible? Why is that question important? Well, it's because if we do not understand what the Bible is, then we will misread it. If we treat it as an instruction manual or rule book telling us only how we should live, what we should do, then we'll see Leviticus is merely a bunch of expired rules that aren't for us today, and so what's the point? But if we see the Bible as one unfolding story, our story, then we can see its relevance. But when we talk about the Bible being a story, it is not a fable just to teach us moral lessons. Neither is it merely a history book just to give us some interesting history about the past, as if it's Ancestry.com or something like that. Rather, the story of the Bible is the story of redemption, of redemption in Christ, of salvation. This is what the entire Bible is about. And this is what Jesus said in Luke 24 to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. He rebuked his disciples for not understanding that all of Scripture, he says all of Scripture is about his sufferings and subsequent glories for our salvation. That Scripture is about his coming to earth, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension on high which reconciles us to God and brings us into His eternal presence, washing us from all our sins. As he says, in, as, as Luke 24-27 says of Jesus, beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, including Leviticus, and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Leviticus is about Christ and His redemption, His sufferings and glories to save us. How so? How does Leviticus fit into this storyline of redemption in Christ? Well, in answering this question, we actually need to zoom out. And we need to go back to the Garden of Eden. And For those of you who have been in Sunday school, this will sound familiar. God originally brought man, the first humans, Adam and Eve, to a very specific place on the globe, a place called Eden. And a specific place within Eden, the Garden of Eden. This was obviously a very special place because their sin got them kicked out of it and prevented them from entering back into it while they could remain on the earth. Uh, they were obviously still lived, allowed to live on planet Earth. They weren't kicked off to planet Mars or something like that. 
But because of their sin, they were not allowed to enter the garden. Sin does not prevent man from dwelling on earth, but it does prevent man from dwelling in the Garden of Eden. And so this space, this Garden of Eden was holy. Holy means something that's set apart, separate, not like the rest. And so whoever would dwell in the Garden of Eden needed to be holy. And so the minute they sinned, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And so what was so special about this garden? What was special about this garden was that it was the place where God dwelt with man. Genesis 3.8 says that God walked with Adam. And that walk does not refer to a literal stroll with literal legs. Rather, walking refers to God's presence. It's an idiom for God's presence. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. In Leviticus 26.11-12, the book that we're studying, God promises His people, I will make my dwelling literally tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. So walking among them is tied with God's dwelling with them, His special presence with them, tied to the tabernacle. Paul, speaking to the Gentile Corinthians, speaking to us, the church, applies this verse from Leviticus. To us in 2 Corinthians 6 and says, For we are the temple of the living God. Not a literal building, we're a people. But we're called a temple. And why is that? Well, Paul says, here's my proof. And he quotes from Leviticus 26, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And Paul says, because of this, we have God's special presence with us by His Spirit. And so God walking with Adam and Eve back in the garden is God's special presence with them. This is what Adam and Eve had in the garden with God, which was lost due to sin, and thus required redemption. So we see from this that Eden was a temple, a dwelling place of God. And we get further confirmation of this where we see the two cherubim standing at the east entrance, guarding the way in. And we see that also at the tabernacle where you have two cherubim embroidered on the veil back into God's presence. And you have those two cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant where God says, that is exactly where I will be to meet with you. And so here we have Eden, that first presence, special presence of God, lost. However, ever since man was kicked out because of Adam's sin there in Genesis, the question that the rest of the Bible is set out to answer is, how can man ever dwell in God's presence? Would God and man walk together again? And this question is asked in Psalm 15.1 this way, O Lord, who shall sojourn into your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who shall sojourn in your tent? Is 
referring to the tabernacle where God's holy presence is. And that's important because, you know, the whole book of Leviticus, the setting is at this tent, this tabernacle where God's presence is. And so the question, who shall sojourn into your tent, is who shall enter into that tabernacle that where your presence is? And that question there in Psalm 15.1 is paralleled with who shall dwell on your holy hill, literally a mountain. The same question about the mountain asked in Psalm 24, which says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? Oh, this hill or mountain of the Lord is His holy place. The mountain of the Lord is His holy place. And that's because Eden was on a mountain. Ezekiel 28 calls Eden the holy mountain of God. God's special presence. And so to ask the question, who shall dwell in your presence? is to ask the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall enter into your tent? That's the question that the Bible is set out to answer. In the book prior to Leviticus, Exodus, and even before that, of course, in Genesis, but especially in Exodus, begins to answer that question. In Exodus 3.1, it says that Moses came to the mountain of God. Oh, the mountain of God, which is what Eden was called. And it was a holy place because when Moses went up there and he saw that flame in the bush and God speak to him, God said, remove the sandals from your feet because you are standing on holy ground. This mountain of the Lord is special. This is where my presence is. And God promised Moses that the people of Israel would come to this mountain to worship him. Oh, God is bringing the people back into his presence. This mountain of the Lord. And we see that this is the case after the exodus out of Egypt. They come to this mountain called Mount Sinai. And that flame that was on the mountain that appeared to Moses comes down and leads the people of God out as a pillar of cloud by day and a flame of fire by night. And then this pillar of cloud and fire goes up on Mount Sinai. But in this visible manifestation, it expands. And it shows the holy terror of God. A God who is full of wrath, whose law has been broken. And so the people of God can't approach. They're still at the bottom. They can't ascend up. And who shall ascend? They can't. They're at the bottom. But there's a certain segment who can ascend. And that segment is Aaron and his brothers, uh, Nadab, or his sons, Nadab and Abihu, those who would be priests. They can come up the mountain, but not all the way, only halfway. There's only one man who can come all the way up and enter into that cloud of God's presence. And that's Moses, the mediator. And so here at Mount Sinai, we see three sections of holiness. The first is the bottom of the mountain, where the people of God may be. The second is halfway up, where Aaron and the other priests may be. And the third is within the cloud itself where only one man may enter. 
And these three sections are then going to translate into that tabernacle where you have the outer court where the people of God may be. And then you have the holy place where only the priests may enter in. And then you have the most holy place where the cloud of God fills, which only one man may enter in only once a year. So in answering the question, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Exodus says, only Moses, the mediator of God's people. But then there's a dilemma at the end of Exodus that brings us to Leviticus. Once the tent or the tabernacle is built for God to dwell in, and the threefold sections like the mountain, the cloud of God descends and fills the most holy place. Now God is dwelling with his people in this tent. Who shall sojourn into this tent? But Moses can't enter. Exodus 40, 35 says, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled in on it. This cloud is the same cloud that was on top of the mountain that Moses could enter into, and only Moses. But now Moses can't enter into it. And this is meant to stand out like a neon flashing sign. Just when it seems like a resolution has been brought about, God descends down to be with his people in this tent. But no one can sojourn into it. Moses can't sojourn into it. And so if not even Moses can enter, then how will man be able to enter God's presence? As Psalm 15 asks, Who shall sojourn into your tent? Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Moses is able to ascend the mountain of the Lord, but he can't sojourn into the tent. And so this is the question that the book of Exodus sets out to answer. Who shall sojourn into your tent? Who can enter into God's presence? How do we get into God's presence? And this brings us to the second question as to why we should study Leviticus, and that is, how does Leviticus show the way back into God's presence? And we see that the book of Leviticus begins by describing the sacrifices required to approach God. So you have to see Exodus is t- Leviticus tied to Exodus. It's not a whole new, a completely different story. It's, a, it's like chapter 3 of the same book. Exodus ends with, Moses can't enter. Then how can we enter? Leviticus. Here's sacrifices. The offerings go up like smoke to God as a pleasing aroma to Him. This signifies that the way to ascend up to God will be through the sacrifices. The sacrifices not only make atonement, that is, cancel out the sin of the people, but they are also how the people bring their tribute and gifts and offerings and worship to God. How does this worship and tribute come up to God? How do we bring it to God? It's through the sacrifice, the smoke that ascends up to Him. And so since it is through the sacrifices that the people of God ascend to God, Leviticus begins with rules for sacrifices in chapters 1-7. through But this requires priests to offer them up. 
And so chapters 8 and 9 refer to the ordination of the priests through the washing of water and the blood of the sacrifice. And once Aaron the high priest is consecrated and appointed, he offers up the required sacrifice on behalf of the people. And then he raises his hands, conferring the blessing to the people. That's why we raise our hands at, at the benediction. It's to convey, because we can't lay hands on everybody, but it's to convey God is blessing you. He's conveying a blessing to you. And so Aaron, he does this in this Arianic benediction because the sacrifice has been accepted for the people's behalf and God now blesses them. They can be assured of God's blessing. The fire consumed that first sacrifice and the glory of God appeared to all people. But then we go on to immediately read next that the same fire that consumed that sacrifice consumes Nadab and Abihu. They offered up strange fire. That is incense, incense that the Lord had not required. It's also possible that they may have tried to enter into that most holy place, given what Leviticus 16 is going to say, that they drew near to the Lord and died. And then it's followed by instructions of how to properly draw near to God and that day of atonement, entering into that most holy place. Now, we may think that, you know, this is a pretty minor infraction. I mean, all they did is, is change the incense a little bit. I mean, maybe they didn't use the right ingredients. I mean, what's the big deal? You know, and they're at least they're offering sacrifice. I mean, maybe the penalty should be a verbal or written uh, reprimand or maybe some sort of remedial training, right? After all, we don't want to make people feel bad about themselves. Well, instead, they got the death penalty. They got consumed by the fiery wrath of the Lord. The same fire that came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the sacrifice consumed Nadab and Abihu. This reveals that God, whose justice is perfect, God's not extreme, God doesn't fly off the handle, God is perfect in everything He does. He cares even about the small details when it comes to worshiping Him. You know, we have a tendency to think that the small details in worship are no big deal, even legalistic to care about. You know, I remember one pastor gleefully boasting of having donuts and orange juice for the Lord's Supper to make a statement that he wasn't legalistic. I mean, after all, donuts, that's a form of bread, and orange juice is a liquid drink. You know, and what's the big deal? And if anyone brought up an issue with it, he's like, well, you're just being a strict legalist. What's the problem with you? You really care about such small details? There's something wrong with you. But God cares even enough to engulf these two in flames to burn them to death. That's the God we worship. As God says in verse 3 about this incident, among those who are near to me, I will be sanctified. That is, be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And what this also reveals is that there is absolutely no other way to approach God and have His wrath satisfied other than through the sacrifice that He appoints. We either rely on the perfect sacrifice to be consumed 
by his fire or we ourselves are consumed. And this shows us how much we need to depend upon him. And then this section of Leviticus comes to a climax in chapter 16 with the Day of Atonement. This is the day that occurs once a year where the high priest enters into that most holy place. Who shall sojourn into the tent? Only the high priest. Only the high priest can enter in. The high priest gets dressed in his high priestly robes and then takes two goats from the congregation. One goat he cast out into the wilderness, symbolically bearing the sins of the people as he lays his hands on the goat and confesses all the sins of Israel. Then he sends his goat out into the wilderness, a sign of being cast out into the realm of the curse, the wilderness. And this reveals that a substitute will carry the sins of the people away. And then Aaron took the bull, the second bull, as their, or I'm sorry, then Aaron took a bull as their sin offering and sprinkles the blood inside the most holy place in order to make atonement for their sins. That is to cancel out their sins, to deal with their sins. And so we see here, with the only entrance into the most holy place, who shall sojourn into the tent? We see here who shall sojourn into his tent. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can come back into his presence? And the answer is only the high priest with the blood of a sacrifice. As God goes on to say in chapter 17, the next chapter, God has given the life of the sacrifice to make atonement for their souls. This is how they shall live. This is how they shall enter into the presence of God. It is through the life of the sacrifice that gives up its life so that they may live and enter into the presence of God. And as it says there in chapter 17, God is the one who has given it for them that they may live. God is the one who provides the sacrifice. That brings them back into the presence of of God. And of course, this points us to our Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? He is that high priest who may enter into the presence of God, the true holy place, the true heavenly one, and offers up the only sacrifice to atone for all our sins that we may live. Except his sacrifice is not an animal. But it's Himself, His very own life for our life, that we may live. As Hebrews 9, 11-12 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the most holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And God is the one who has provided Him. God is the one who gives His only begotten Son that we may live. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish, 
but have everlasting life. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. No one comes to the Father. That is, no one enters the presence of God. No one sojourns into His tent, so to speak, but through Jesus. And so who shall sojourn into God's tent, which Nadab and Abihu tried to but were consumed? Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Well, the Psalm 15 goes on to say, in answering that question, only he whose walk is blameless and does that which is right and has never committed idolatry. How many of us qualify? None of us. And that is why Leviticus shows that only the high priest and only through blood may enter in, which points us to the great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is perfectly blameless and perfectly righteous and never lifted up his soul to another whose hands were clean, whose heart was blameless, and he does this in our place as our righteousness. And he comes into the presence of God for us and offers up himself, thus bringing an eternal redemption so that we may enter in, not by our blamelessness, not by our works, but by his. We ascend the hill of the Lord only in Christ who came down from heaven, who descended, descended all the way down into the grave, bearing the wrath of God, and then has ascended back up into heaven. And we who are in him ascend with him and are seated with him now. He's the one who brings us into the presence of God. He is the one who has ascended that hill for us. And we in him ascend into the presence of God. This is how we are restored back into God's presence. Through Christ, our great high priest, and it's only through faith in Him, trusting that He did it all, leaving us with nothing to do, that we are able to enter into that most holy place. The third and final question as to why we should study Leviticus so we have seen first, how does Leviticus fit into this overall storyline of the Bible? Second, how does Leviticus show us the way back into God's presence? And third reason why we should study Leviticus, showing its relevance, is how does Leviticus show us how then we should live? Well, after the instruction on the sacrifices and after the great day of atonement to make atonement for the souls of the people, and only after this, the book of Leviticus then shows us how we are to live. And it could be summed up in one simple phrase. Be holy as I am holy. We are to reflect God's holiness and living holy lives of obedience to God's commandments. And this is where we need to keep in mind two important distinctions as we move along. Okay, So two important distinctions here as it pertains to how then we are to live in keeping God's commandments, because there's obviously some commandments from the book of Leviticus that we don't keep today, such as offering up animal sacrifices. So which commandments do we keep? Which commandments do we not keep? Two important distinctions to help us with this. The first is the distinction between moral law and what's called positive law. 
Positive does not mean the opposite of negative, you know, like a negative vibe. You need positive vibes. Positive is in the sense of something that's added on. Okay. Moral law is that which is right no matter what the time, people, or place in God's creation. This is what's always wrong or always right. doesn't matter where you are in history or the geography. This is summed up in the Ten Commandments. It is always wrong to not worship God alone and not in the right way and to regard the Lord's name and Lord's day uh, as unholy. It's always wrong to do that. It's always wrong to dishonor those in authority. It's always wrong to murder. It's always wrong to commit adultery. It's always wrong to steal. It's always wrong to bear false witness. It's always wrong to covet. It doesn't matter where you are, who the people are, even the the pagan that's that's never opened up a Bible, Romans 1 says, will stand before God and give an account. Because this law, as Romans 2 says, is written on even the Gentiles' conscience. So God's moral law summed up in the Ten Commandments is what is right for all people everywhere at all times. And everyone has broken this law, and that is why everyone needs Christ. Positive law, on the other hand, is that which is added at certain times to certain people and can therefore be removed. And it's tied to redemptive history, where we are in the unfolding story. So there are laws such as don't eat from the tree of knowing good and evil for a specific time and place. Circumcise your males on the eighth day, specific time and place. The unclean and clean distinctions in Leviticus. All the instructions for Old Covenant worship, the sacrifices and so forth, which then get replaced by instructions for New Covenant worship, including signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which replace the Passover and circumcision. The instructions for uh, Old Covenant worship are anticipating Christ and His work, who would be the sacrifice to offer up Himself and open up the way into God's presence, and therefore the old covenant worship ceases in light of Christ's fulfillment. And we also need to remember a second distinction, and that is the distinction between the law as a covenant of works and the law as a rule of life. That is, obeying the law for life in order to get life from God, get blessing from Him, and obeying the law from life from having life in Christ. After the laws are given uh, here in Leviticus, Leviticus 26, the second to last chapter, ends by saying that if the Israelites keep these laws, then they will be blessed with life. You need to do this for life. Or if you don't, you will face the curse. And so whether or not they are blessed or cursed is based on their obedience. That is a covenant of works. Blessing or cursing is dependent on whether or not they obey. Leviticus 18.5 explicitly mentions that. Now for the Israelites, it was earthly life, long life in the land, but it's reflection, and it's meant to be a reflection of Adam in that covenant of works in the garden. Do this for eternal life, you and all those you represent, which Romans 5 says was all man. But because he failed, he died with spiritual death, eternal death, and we in him. 
And so that is why we need somebody to come and fulfill this for us. And that's what God is showing by giving Israel this type of covenant. Their need for Christ. You can't do this. I'm going to give you laws by which if a man does them, he will live. But you can't do it so that you see so clearly your need for Christ. And so we see it too as we read through it. We need someone to fulfill the covenant for us. We need someone to obey for us so that we may live. But because Christ fulfilled that covenant, because Christ is our life, we do not obey for life. That is in order to stand before God, in order to pass His judgment, in order to get into heaven, in order to avoid His punishment. Rather, we obey from life because we have life in Christ because He has done everything required and being united to Him, we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but we now have life in Christ and Christ's life is now in us and He is by His Spirit working His life out in us. So we do not keep these commandments for life, do this and live. We keep His commandments from life. Now that you have life, do this. And so we need to keep those two distinctions in mind as we consider how we shall live. But may God bless our study through His holy and inspired Word in the book of Leviticus. And may He show us Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we see the relevance of this book, this wonderful book that you have left for us for our instruction, that it does show us Christ. It shows us who may sojourn into your tent. And it's through our great high priest and the sacrifice that he has offered in no other way. No one else was able to enter in. As we see with Nadab and Abihu, any other attempt results in death. And so may we see from this the greatness of our sin and misery, but the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we may increase in our faith and dependence in Him, that we may see His glory, that we may delight in Him, and that we may therefore glorify Him all the more. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.